the industry is on a tangent where if people demand more comfortable garment, then they put it on and they think short term, oh, wow, this feels good. Whether it'll feel as good in two weeks, no, in two weeks, in three weeks, in four weeks, um, then they may have to go and buy more of it. So it's, it's a really difficult problem. It's comfort versus sustainability. And they can't really understand the lack of sustainability of elastic fiber. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. Today, we're going to be talking about fast fashion, sustainability, and the rise of athleisure clothing, and sharing an interview we conducted with dress historian Dr. Anne Bissonnette. My name is Sophia Osborne. And I'm Lizzie Barron. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwitzee, Wiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together— including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. Throughout this episode, we discuss how decisions you make about clothing affects land around the world, including locally. So we ask you to consider the impact of consumption and sustainability on the land you live on, and how to support the original inhabitants of that land in their efforts to protect it. Before we dive into our conversation with Anne, we wanted to give you all a bit of a background on one of the main fabrics used in athleisure clothing and its sustainability, or lack thereof. So elastine is also known as spandex or lycra, and these terms are used both interchangeably and based on regional differences. So this material is used primarily for exercise clothing, like these bike shorts, because of how stretchy the material is. Chemically speaking, elastine is an inorganic material, and specifically a long-chain polymer called polyurethane. In terms of environmental impact, a concern with elastine is that because it is a completely synthetic material, it is not biodegradable. So elastine can just accumulate and accumulate in the environment without hope of breaking down. As well, its production processes include toxic chemicals that could be environmentally harmful and harmful to the workers utilizing them in production if proper safety procedures aren't followed. So both of these ethical concerns are continuously heightened by the excessive consumption culture we all are all a part of and are all complicit in. So as fun as a good TikTok haul is, the overconsumption that they encourage is just one more instance of our obsession with consumption that is materially no pun intended, affecting the world. 
So for instance, according to the United Nations Alliance for Sustainable Fashion, the fashion industry is responsible for approximately 2 to 8% of greenhouse gas emissions, uses around 215 trillion liters of water per year, and is estimated to contribute about 9% of the microplastics heading into the ocean. Those statistics seem pretty daunting for one industry, and in particular, one industry that is made up of so many people, so many dynamics, and even enjoyment, as fashion can be, certainly is for me, such an exciting and pertinent kind of self-expression. So all of this begs the evergreen questions of, at what cost do we enjoy fashion? Is it possible to dress both sustainably and ethically? And for that matter, is ethical consumption under capitalism possible at all? All very good questions. So to start to answer them, we wanted to learn more about the history and impact of fast fashion. So we called up Dr. Anne Bissonnette, an associate professor at the University of Alberta with expertise as a dress historian, museum curator, and designer. Dr. Anne Bissonnette, she, her, and I'm an associate professor in material culture and curatorship in the human ecology department at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. And what's your experience and expertise in the fashion industry and in the fashion world? Uh, Well, I have an undergraduate degree in fashion design from LaSalle College in Montreal that was followed by a, um, let's see, I had a science degree before I went into fashion. Then after that, I did a, a bachelor's degree in uh, fi- in history of art. Then I did a master's degree in museum co- museum studies of costume and textiles that trained me to be not only a dress historian, but also a museum curator. And after that, I taught fashion design, fashion show production at LaSalle College in Morocco. Then I taught uh, fashion draping, dress history, all sorts of stuff at LaSalle College in Istanbul, um, Turkey. And then I taught LaSalle at a uh, place called uh, Stevens College in Missouri fashion. I taught fashion again. And then I started doing a museum, being a museum curator at the Kent State University Museum in Ohio. And uh, now I'm at the University of Alberta where I do both teaching about museum studies and about uh, our relationship with our stuff. The stuff being, in my case, um, mostly clothing and textiles. And I'm also the curator of the Anne Lambert Clothing and Textile Collection at the University of Alberta. So I do research in terms of dress history, but I also do creative designs, uh, continue as a designer where my work is juried and presented in different museums at uh, juried competitions. Wow, that's just, an amazing amount of experience. This is kind of like a general question to start, but based on like your research and expertise as a historian, how do you see the history of fashion informing its present, like environmentally, socially, politically? Well, the present always is shifting, right? But there is something that's happening now as we're on the verge of maybe, maybe not, um, exiting the lockdown phase and getting into more public spaces. And so when it comes to this present, 
uh, you know, two years ago, I would have answered things slightly differently, but only slightly, in that the COVID-19 mindset has jolted what was already in the works. And as a historian of fashion, I take a long perspective when I look back and see that moments in history that were very, very um, influential in changing how people thought and lived led to moment of, um, in, in chemistry, there's a thing called a catalyst. And that's when something accelerates the speed in which things change. And I think that this is where we are with COVID. It's not the only moment where we've seen this, this acceleration of speed in something that was in the works, but we are definitely pushing things forward in terms of, um, in the history of fashion from the 18th century on, there, there's a term that, that I'd use that would be slovenly. And I don't mean it to be detrimental to people, but I'm just meaning that things become more and more casual and the casual tends to link back to um, active sportswear. So say in the 18th century, this was, um, there was in France, this vogue of what they call Anglomania because the British loved to ride their horses, hunt, and they had special garments that were borrowed from, uh, from a middle or upper, now more of a middle class and even lower class. And so this idea of wearing garments not made out of silk, but made out of wool that moved with the body in a different way, uh, tailored garments that could um, react to how you moved on a horse, for example. People started to migrate to a different way of dressing. And what was already in the work got pushed further um, after the French Revolution, for example. So. Uh, it trickled and then it got accelerated. So here we are again with what some people, and I would say like this whole mindset of not so much slowly, but of more casual attire. And what was already in the works prior to this point, what people might've worn when they were um, at home, in the weekend, at the gym, um, is getting pushed further into high fashion. I was wondering also if you could maybe speak to fast fashion, like what you would define fast fashion and if there's if there was a particular year or time period when fast fashion was considered to have started. I don't that we can say the year per se. So for example, we take all of the things that are, you go to winners and you try to buy a cotton shirt and it's very hard to just find a plain cotton shirt. Um, you'll find a lot of viscose, a lot of rayon, and we know that they don't wash very well. And even though there are some ways of creating rayon that are less um, harmful to the environment, it is still more harmful to the environment. So um, there's all sorts of issues, even with cotton and pesticides. So it, like, if we think of, all right, let me reframe this, um, elastic fibers, and any kind of elastin, um, so spandex, lycra, um, to me, that's very much linked to garments that are disposable because these fibers, as you wear them, they stretch and they deform. And as you wash them, uh, if you wash them in hot water, forget about it, it, it destroys the, the, the fiber itself. You can't use any kind of uh, bleach on it, it destroys them. But even if you take great care of them, they're super comfortable when you buy them, 
But within a few wash and prolonged wear, they deteriorate, they lose their shape, they become uh, not very presentable. So between these cheap fibers like viscose and rayon and the use of um, an added, a, they're in that New York Times article this morning about Wall Street men wearing things that they didn't used to wear. There was a really nice link to this uh, Lululemon types of pants that look like regular pants for men. And that's why they're acceptable because they look the part and Lululemon cuts things. Their, their pattern makers are very good. So these pants look great, but when you look at the fabric content, you have 33% cotton and the rest are all uh, fibers that are priced for their elasticity. So either like 30% of, um, elastin, so spandex or lycra, and 55% of a type of polyester that's really good and elastic. So people put them on, they look normal, but man, are they comfortable, but they do not last that long because of this use of um, elastic, elastic fibers. So that's one component where environmentally, we are going further and further away from a sustainable um, environment. Yes, it's more comfortable, but it's very damaging to the environment. You can't separate the elastin, uh, the elastic fibers from the cotton. So when you um, send, you can't even bring it to the goodwill because who's gonna wear deformed pants that lose their elasticity, right? So there, th that cycle of people trying to consume less is actually going against their need to be more comfortable. So we have several issues that if, if we didn't look at how things are made and how the fabrics and the fibers, uh, it's, it's a really big question. I know I'm not sure I, I answered this, but I believe that the use of elastic fibers in uh, fabric really started to increase in a major way in the 1990s. Um, I could be wrong, but I think it was somewhat in the 1990s. And from that point on, it has shown no sign of declining. So um, this is a major concern, but again, other types of fibers, I know that I've bought a few things at Winners and within washing them twice, I go like, why did I even buy that? It looks really horrible, but it's really hard to buy anything else but. So even though I don't consume much, there are times when I need things and it's hard to find something that will last. So I think that people are being blamed um, for, for buying too much. And obviously this is an issue for some. But even the rest of us who have plenty and just look for, ching, for a few things to, um, to, you know, that we need or that we want to do a small upgrade into our wardrobe, it's very hard to find things that will last. So the fashion industry has embedded obsolescence in not only its use of fiber, but it, in giving us this greater comfort that leads to obsolescence. Something we've been focusing on a lot is like how particularly younger consumers, but consumers overall really expect transparency or hope to get transparency from where we're buying clothing. And particularly like with social media and kind of like the consumers might affect the companies that they're getting their clothes from. Like if, if that pressure actually works, if there really is transparency or if it's just, if it's just lip service. No, there's something really um, important that you, you bring up. And um 
it used to be, for example, um, there was a, a very big fire in a New York uh, sweatshop in 1914, I think, called the Triangle Factory Fire. And after that, there was a lot of union organizing for better working condition. And even on the labeling of garments after that point, you would see if something was union made, for example. So the the public's demand for wanting things that were made in safe environments, um, uh, living wages, et cetera, um, effective, affected what the government forced on the labeling of garments. Obviously, at that point, a lot of the garments and most of the people were wearing were produced locally. Um, not necessarily the fibers themselves, silk would still come from all over and even cottons, but still governments had an ability to uh, legislate what would be on a label. Wouldn't it be great that governments would impose on companies the ability, um, not the ability, but to make them abide by certain standards so that we would know if things were made um, in sweatshops or in places that were unionized, um, et cetera. So I think that the, the consumer and, and younger generations are very strong about this. And luckily for us, they are, and they continue to um, lead the way because in the past, I think it was 19, in the 1990s where um, a lot of Canadian companies could not uh, compete because the laws had changed that the, the balance, the, it's all economics, but anyway, you have more and more um, foreign manufacturers um, exporting and the people were paid not a living wage and horrid conditions. And how do you compete with that, right? So you have more and more local companies where people were unionized. Like I, in, in Edmonton, there was a jeans company called GWG and they, uh, they, Anyway, they made really good garments for people here and they had a really long life. And not surprisingly, like a lot of other companies, a lot of them folded when the quotas started to change. So the laws change. Uh, we are the people who vote for uh, governments. Can we still have some kind of ability to show this transparency, especially in a global context where the fiber might be made somewhere in China, the labor might be in Vietnam, the producer is um, somewhere in a global uh, universe and it's sold through Amazon, for example. So we have several layers of um, merchandising, production, advertising, and it's really hard to untangle all of these layers, very intricate layers. It is. It has always been a global industry to be sure, but it is even more so now. So can the Canadian government um, restrict or monitor what's happening in Pakistan? Can people be assured that the individuals that give these seal of approval of being ethically produced and made, uh, can they be trusted? So these are all really good um, issues that are getting even more complex that require um, international cooperation to be sure. And I think that some companies, and we're not even just talking about production, but I know that you're your listeners are um, paying attention to sustainability issues. And we did another exhibition with students that was called Misfits, 
um, fashion, the body and sustainability. And the ability to have garments that are cut for the way that people's bodies are and sold accordingly um, is another thing that the Canadian government has a series of um, coded sizing. And say, for example, a guy goes in to Walmart and he uh, wants to have a 34 uh, waist pair of jeans and seems so much. So he goes in, you can find these numbers. They are regulated by law. It's an actual measurements. It has to be true to the measurements that's on the pants. He gets in the store, he might try them on, but he's fairly certain that these fits because it fits his measurements, he goes home. As a woman, um, we do not have sizing that are equivalent to real measurements. We have to buy things that are called coded sizing. So men tend not to understand the problem that uh, occurs when women try to buy sizes, especially when they try to buy it on the internet without trying them on. You may try pants for a really long period of time because no one size 10, whatever, is the same from one manufacturer to the other. So because this is a coded size, the manufacturers don't have to actually uh, link their product to any real measurements. So it, it works with menswear. It's completely out of the window with women's wear. So were women to ask for coded sizing, they might actually be able to find something that is whatever um, size waistline that, you know, 80 centimeter or whatever it is. So it leads to a lot of purchasing that, you either bother to send it back or to bring it back to the store, or you just continue to try to find another pair of pants. They're not cut for different types of women's bodies. And so there are a lot of different um, possibilities that are in the works, but this has not really changed the industry. Maybe it'll be a web manufacturer that will take on this challenge of, um, being more sustainable in the fit of the garments. Because if you continue to buy things that don't fit you, you continue not to want to wear them that much. And you continue to seek something that fits you better. And thus you consume to try to find the holy grail of something that fits your body. I think that you are correct in trying to get, um, to give your support to people who are more transparent and I think asking for, and there are a lot of different um, movements that are asking for transparency, and that has to go through some kind of government or international agreement. And it's been done before on a national level. Um, can we do it on an international level so that people have uh, a fair wage and the environment is not compromised by uh, an industry that is is a great culprit, but the people also demand it. So we can't just blame the industry where the more Lycra you put in and the more people buy it, people have to be aware that there are consequences to the environment when they buy something that is made out of 30% cotton and the rest elastic fibers. Oh, yeah, I don't quite know the solutions, yeah. um, but I think that the, the, just like when we talked about before, when there's seeds that are there and then um, changes occur, I wanna make, I wanna believe that there is a big enough um, company and it might be people like Walmart 
and it might be people that are really broad, like Levi's, for example, um, who have enough uh, courage to take on the issue of um, coded versus sized, like a, a real measurement, broaden that to women's um, women's wear and also address different types of body. And I talk about women, but there are men with different types of bodies too. And if somebody did that and did it well and used the research that has been done, then they might get enough buy-in um, from the population, especially people who buy online, that other people will jump in and that will create a big enough change. And we may be at the cusp of this since more and more people are used to buying online but are so disappointed by what they get that it just doesn't fit. Absolutely, definitely. Let's hope that yeah. all of this is not for naught. <laughs> definitely, fingers crossed. Is there anything you wanted to plug like your website or any research or anything you'd want listeners to check out in particular? Well, yeah, we have some really interesting um, web development. If you're interested in the history of fashion, we have several virtual exhibitions that are currently on our website. Um, you can just go into Google and look for the Anne Lambert Clothing and Textile Collection at the University of Alberta. And then you'll see some exhibitions that are there for a long period of time. Other um, virtual demonstration of some physical exhibitions that have occurred throughout the year. Um, you could also use the um, search index on our website to find garments and to do some research on some garments in our collection. And our collection is open to researchers. Um, we are in Edmonton, but uh, we have other ways to reach individuals through our website. So I think this is a, a very good plug. Thank you. was Dr. Anne Bissonnette on the history and future of sustainability in fashion. Of course, there's so much more we could talk about with fashion and sustainability. Thrifting, depop, capsule wardrobes, lifestyle influencers, greenwashing, the list goes on and on. We've only scratched the surface, but we hope it's helped you to start thinking about the clothes you buy and everything that went into making them. All the labor and water and land. And to think about where these clothes will end up when we're through with them. Most importantly, we hope this interview has helped you to imagine a world in which our clothes could fit us better, last longer, and lead to less pollution and waste. And with all that to think about, that's all the time we have for this week. We've been your hosts, Lizzie Barron and Sophia Osborne. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. This episode was written and produced by Sophia Osborne and me, Lizzie Barrett. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, tara at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terrainforma. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.
Nice.